HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The future of farms is the future of food. No Farms, No Future is a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Listen today. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our guest today is Claire Cheney. Claire is the founder and owner of the renowned Curio Spice Company. Curio is a mission-driven spice company importing spices directly and sustainably from growers all over the world. Claire has an obsession for spices, which she discovered in her early travels to Southeast Asia. She is the blender-in-chief, selecting the spices and unleashing her incredible sensory abilities to create unique spice blends. We were curious how Claire learned to trust her nose and her palate. How did she know she was special? I am always curious how somebody gets the confidence about their palate. And I, I really want to know, when was the first time, when was your first inkling that what you tasted and smelled and understood was different from everybody else? That's a great question. And it goes way back, I think, to my experience in specialty coffee. And that was a job I had right out of college. I actually got a job at a small coffee company that roasted their own single origin coffee beans. And I went to a coffee tasting competition at a fellow company's spot. It was pavement coffee, I think. And they did something called coffee triangulation, where you taste three coffees blind and you have to figure out which one is different from the other two. And it's surprisingly very, very hard, but I won the competition and I just was like, what? Where did that come from? Because <laughs> I was up against all these really experienced baristas and it's one of those industries that people seriously geek out on. So that was my first sign that I was pretty good at tasting things. <laughs> That's amazing. But before that, as a kid, 
did you have like a, just a strong, clear palate? And everybody else would say, this is good. And you would say, no, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, to some extent, my mom was a great cook. Uh, we, I grew up on the campus of a boarding school on the South shore of Massachusetts. And we had a interesting household where we were always having boarding students living with us. We had sort of a small dorm. And so it was this kind of international household. And we always had students from China, from Nigeria, from Sweden, all over the world. And they would often bring their interesting comfort foods from home. And that gave me kind of an early taste of what different foods were out there because we never really went out to eat growing up. My parents were just working all the time and I had a couple of siblings. It was all crazy. So really, home was where I was tasting things, but I definitely did a lot of cooking myself and experimenting in the kitchen. One of my earliest dips was a peanut butter and mayonnaise dip, which uh, turns out is pretty gross. <laughs> it does not sound great to me. I am wincy. <laughs> I've come a long way, Louisa. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you have to try things to, to figure out what, what might be good. Those seemed like the most accessible ingredients to me at the time, probably because I was short and I could reach them in the cupboard. <laughs> but it was a fun youth. And certainly my parents were both creative people and really encouraged a lot of experimentation. I think a lot of my sensory awareness came from the outdoors, came from spending time with plants and growing my own garden, you know, when I was six years old. That was a really wonderful experience. And we would get these expired seed packets from a farmer friend of my dad's and we would spread them all out on the living room floor and decide what we were going to grow. That was also a cool thing to think about as a connection to where I am with a spice business because spices are seeds too. <laughs> so I have these memories of shaking those little packets of seeds and thinking about all the potential that they held inside. Wow. Well, how did you morph or, um, or, or either go up or down the food chain from coffee to spices? Yeah, it was a really interesting winding path. The, curiosity that single origin coffee instilled in me was that connection to origin and that that sense of terroir that can come through products like coffee and chocolate. When I first learned the word terroir, which is normally used in wine to describe how the earth instills different flavors into the grapes, uh, I thought, well, that is a really unique idea. And it must apply to a lot of things. And so when I was learning about coffee, I got really interested in different industries as well. And I actually went on to work in chocolate. I worked for LA Burdick Chocolate and they do really neat single origin chocolate. So I got to know that industry. And, and then I started working for Anna Sortoon. And of course she has her cookbook Spice that is just an incredibly beautiful exploration of Eastern Mediterranean and Middle Eastern cooking through the lens of spice. And I started to get this sense, well, terroir must also apply to spices. And that was kind of where that journey wound its way through my career and then eventually took hold and <laughs> wouldn't let go. So that's when I decided to quit my job and move to 
to Bangkok and really dig dig deep. Whoa. Well, I didn't know that part of it. Let's talk a little bit about you moving to Bangkok. Tell me what that was about. <laughs> yeah, I I was, um, I think I was. How old were you at this I point? I think I was 27, 27, 28 years old. And I was, so I had, you know, a, a, a good number of jobs under my belt. I had a lot of experience in the food industry. I really enjoyed working in the restaurant industry, working at Oleana and Sofra. And I was on the side also really passionate about writing and was working on a blog about food and spices and I don't know, trying to write poetry and also try to write pitches to magazines. And they never wanted my concepts because probably they were just off the rails, but <laughs> I was doing all this research and I was just constantly trying to figure out what do I do with these ideas? What do I do with these curiosities? I fixated on one spice, which is saffron. And I went to travel to Greece while I was at working at Sofa Bakery. My bosses there were all super supportive of my research. And I went on this trip to Greece. I came back. I had done all this research and I thought, I want to keep traveling. I want to keep doing this. I want to do this full time. And that's what made me decide I'm going to quit my day job. <laughs> you know, when people say I'm going to just dive in and do this. And that's what made that decision happen. <laughs> it was a big leap, really. And why Bangkok? So Bangkok, I happened to have a great family connection. My brother was living there with his wife and family. Um, they moved there and they lived there for almost 10 years. She was doing research in climate change and urban planning. And so I had a free place to stay. And it is actually an amazing hub for traveling around Southeast Asia, South Asia. My brother convinced me, hey, you can help us out with the kids and then you can take you know, an $80 flight to Vietnam if you want. So I went there with sort of a one-way ticket and I don't know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to really dig deep and figure out what was this fascination with spices and, and flavors and also the farmers who grew them, you know, spices are such a complicated industry. It's been really dominated by the commodity market and by hugely commercial farming. And I wanted to find out, is there a is there the possibility that we can do better, that there can be more direct trade, more ethical sourcing? So I thought, how about I go visit in person? <laughs> and, and a lot of people thought I was crazy, but they they still put up with my So question. tell me what it was like when you got to your first spice farmer. <laughs> Hello, well, I'm Claire. Yes. <laughs> exactly. It was hard. It was hard, Louisa. I... I look back on that time and think, why did I just think that they would show me, you know, everything? I didn't have any buying power. I was only 28 years old and, and just curious. Sometimes I I interviewed farmers and, and spice co-op owners as though I was writing an article. And sometimes I really was trying to, to put together the pieces either for my blog or for a writing piece. One of my first visits was in Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka, of course, has a long history in the spice trade, particularly with cinnamon. It was ridiculous. I, I show up at this office and 
they, you know, I, I had, I had called them ahead of time and they were like, yeah, I think we can show you around. I just show up with my backpack and they, they said, well, it's pretty far out to the cinnamon field. I think we actually need to take a moped. And so we drive out on this moped like through, and it was exquisite. It was just these rolling green hills, the, you know, monkeys jumping. There's like peacocks wandering around. It's the most absurd, enchanting <laughs> place. And we get to the cinnamon farm. And I also had, I had called somebody to to come along that was um, a friend of a friend who could translate for me. So he he was following along in his car. And so we show up and it's me, the, in, the interpreter, the cinnamon farmer, and the, the guy on the moped. And we're all standing around. <laughs> blinking in the sunlight and just kind of like, who is this white lady who wants to come <laughs> talk about cinnamon? I was in heaven. I mean, I, it was, we walked through the little cinnamon forest and tasted cinnamon berries. And I learned about how to peel cinnamon, which is this really interesting age old process using specialized tools. And they were the all laughing at from, me. Cinnamon is from the bark, right? Not from the berries. Correct. Never. Yes, yes. I've never thought about cinnamon berries. Yeah, they're not as useful, kind of culinarily speaking. But when they're on the tree, they're this bright purple color. So very kind of sci-fi looking. You can use them in teas and things like that. But the bark is where all the flavor is. Yeah. So we we had a blast, and I took a couple videos. You know, I set up my tripod with with a camera and took a couple videos and it's funny very to look back on them yeah. <laughs> i know i felt very professional and like half of them are out of focus and it's ridiculous but looking back at them they're all like rattling away and tamil making fun of me presumably because <laughs> just because i was trying to do the best i can and they were they were like oh i don't know you're not so good at this <laughs> um but it was beautiful and and just to see that fresh bark come off the the branch because they they actually peel it from really skinny branches not not like a big trunk they're these delicate pieces and they're they're kind of greenish yellow when they come off the bark and then they dry to that kind of cinnamon brown color that we're used to it was a wonderful experience and just sort of ridiculous in retrospect because <laughs> i didn't have a business i just had this curiosity i want to know about where the spice comes from and and what does it mean to grow it and peel it? I, I totally have the scene in my head. You are the intrepid potential photojournalist and you go off and discover, my God, there's not only a wealth of stories here, there's a wealth of incredible product. So then what did you do? So after trekking around different spice origins, Vietnam, Cambodia, India, etc. It was actually a a love story that brought me back to the States. I had had a boyfriend back in the States who came over to visit and actually proposed while I was living in Thailand. I said, well, that's one way to get me back home, isn't it? <laughs> very romantic, a very romantic it was, story. <laughs> it was romantic. We went for a few days over to Bali, which is you know, and then I was like, oh God, this is like this cheesy eat, pray, love story. Bali's really cool and also has some cool spices going on, some cool sea salts. We climbed up the edge of a volcano and that's where he, 
pop the question. <laughs> All of his friends were like, oh, come on, you can't do that. That's unfair. <laughs> but uh, after coming home, uh, you know, in newly engaged, I had I had all these stories and all these connections, and I decided to actually start making a small collection of spice blends inspired by the origins. So, for example, one of the spice blends is called Candy Spice, named after the region in Sri Lanka where I had those cinnamon experiences. It's called Candy Sri Lanka, and that blend was designed to celebrate the flavor of Sri Lankan cinnamon, which is delicate and citrusy and, and capture the experience and that, that enchanting sense of spice jungle <laughs> that I, that I explored. So that was one example. And then um, I created three other um, spices and I spice blends. That's what I launched with Curio Spice. I launched four spice blends that were evocative of these spice origins. And I, sold them to places like Sofra Bakery and to um, Formaggio and to other small specialty shops. And that and kind of got my proof of concept through these spice uh, purveyors that were willing to take on my new concept. And that's how it started. I was grateful for that experience that I'd had in and around Boston and Cambridge with the food industry because all these folks came out of the woodwork to support me. And then how did you grow it? Because I know, I know you're all over the country now. We'll be back with Claire Cheney in a moment. You'll want to hear how she translated her spice sense into a successful business. The future of farming in America is uncertain. Our farmers are aging and selling off their land. But the pandemic has revealed the importance of local farms as the national and international supply chain continues to be disrupted. I mean, it's not like most farmers have a company-sponsored retirement plan. I'm Hannah Forden, HRN's program manager, and I want to tell you about a new show. Hosted by John Piotti, the president and CEO of American Farmland Trust, and produced in collaboration with Heritage Radio Network, this is No Farms, No Future. There is a new generation of small farmers. We're here to tell their stories, share knowledge, and dig deep into the future of American farming. From land stewardship. We are losing 2,000 acres of farmland a day. The price of land is often so high that it's really hard to get started. To cracks in the supply chain. By the time I go shopping every single day, there's no meat left to feed my family. The future of farms is the future of food. Subscribe to No Farms, No Future, a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Find us wherever you like to listen. And we are back with Curio Spices' Claire Cheney. And then how did you grow it? I know you're all over the country now. Yeah, it's been an amazing journey and really wild. So after blending the spices kind of cottage style in my apartment in Somerville, I, I then expanded to the garage. <laughs> 
And I felt like like a teenager who's like, now I gotta I gotta have band practice in the garage because it was just like there was so much stuff everywhere and my grinders and it was nonsense. So then I'm in the garage and then I thought this isn't that sustainable. So I I rented space from EH Chocolate. Uh, they had a space at the time in the big building with Taza Chocolate. I was their midnight tenant. <laughs> I would I would literally go in at like ten o'clock from like ten p.m. to 2 a.m. and use their kitchen and and then I grew out of that space and that's when I actually found the retail location where we are on Mass Ave and that was a big step so and the store is beautiful and you have not only spice blends but spices but other beautiful things but do you sell um if somebody's listening to this in you know Seattle Washington can they go on your website and you send it to them Absolutely. Yeah, we have a uh, e-commerce business as well that is really new. We have a website now that has offers all of our spices, over 200 different spices. And also we do virtual classes, which is really cool. The pandemic was this opportunity, came out of hardship. We had to close down the spice shop for about 10 months. And that we pivoted everything online. We used to do in-person classes at the spice shop and cook all all this delicious spice forward food. And then we pivoted all that online too. So it's been a great opportunity to reach folks across the country. And we had a small online business before the pandemic, but um, it was nothing like it is today. So over the last two years, it's been a particularly exciting growth period for, for the business and a pretty wild ride, to say the least. And are the spice blends, rather than uh, 100% cinnamon or 100% um, saffron, are those the things that really that really mark you? Yeah, definitely. I think we celebrate both the signature spice blends, which are the ones from inspired by my travels as well as time-honored spice blends that are based on traditional recipes. So the, that's our classic blends. And I think the combination of the two gives us a unique um, advantage <laughs> in the sense that we have uh, really original creations as part of the our collection, as well as everyday staples that people are looking for. So we we have a chili mix. We have a a yellow curry and things like that. But we also have these other sort of more, more curious <laughs> uh, creations as well. We're also well known for our rare and hard to find spices because we, we do source these single origin spices direct from farmers that are super fresh and have unique flavor profiles that are hard to find elsewhere. So what are, what are some of those? So for example, one of my favorite peppercorns is a wild peppercorn called Vot Superfri, and it's from Madagascar. And it's this teeny tiny peppercorn with a little tail on the end. And it's only harvested in the jungles of Madagascar. It's a wild product. And pepper as a, as a plant kind of grows up other trees or, or plants or things like that. So this is a vine that grows in the forest. And it has the most unique flavor profile. It's definitely recognizable as pepper. It has the peppery heat to it, but it also has these 
anise notes and these herbal citrusy notes and you can just crush a little bit up and put it on a piece of salmon and it and it feels like a totally transformed elevated dish i also put it on pizza <laughs> that's really good too so that's one of our uh, unique spices yeah i was once um i was in southern india and i happened to be happened into the uh the pepper market in oh, india cool. And it was incredible. It was kind of amazing to see these huge bags of pepper from all over the world converging. It was kind of incredible to me. Um, I, I thought for years that that was enough justification just to go back to India when my the supply that I'd smuggled back in my luggage ran out. But <laughs> I would yeah. agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still traveling all the time? No, I'm uh, a small kid now. At the moment, yeah, I have two kiddos uh, under five, so that is a challenge. Uh, my littlest is eight months old. Before the pandemic, with my firstborn, we traveled to Ethiopia with her. She was a year and a half old. I wanted to visit a new women's spice co-op in the southwest region of the country, and she came right along and had a blast. <laughs> chewing on raw coffee beans, running around in the fields of turmeric. It was a lot of fun. Having a child when you travel creates kind of a different connection with folks because because language is, is a barrier and, and yet kids are, are a great connector. One of the things that I noticed in your store that I thought was so cool is you have these spice kits that are keyed to specific cookbooks. How did that come about? Yeah, so the the spice kits are meant to encourage a connection to a cookbook that has a particular focus on spices. I think the first one we made, I'm not positive about this, but I think the first one we made was with Double Awesome, the cookbook from May May. Uh, and I believe you did a, a piece with Irene, right? She's yeah. awesome. <laughs> and uh, so when that cookbook she came is, out- She is, in fact, Double yeah. Awesome. <laughs> She's double awesome. Exactly. Uh, when that cookbook came out, I, you know, just wanted to support her and her brand. So we signed on to get the cookbook in the shop. And it was just really fun because we had a lot of the spices that the book called for. And we thought, here's a great way to invite people into the recipes with even more reason to cook. It gets people engaged with cookbooks in a way that is different. I have a personal project, but I have a personal project <laughs> this year that I am disciplining myself at least once a week to cook absolutely slavishly, perfectly, following all the directions with all the right spices from different cookbooks. So oh, good. Um, the cookbook, I've been going through this, of course, we're only in January. Sure. <laughs> Yesterday, I pulled out some of the Ottolenghi cookbooks. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, I wonder, those are more spices and ingredients than I can, that's a hunt and peck kind of thing. That'd be a great spice kit if you had something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. It's just like, which Autolenghi book to choose? There's so many. The last one, oh, I can't remember now. Simple, maybe. It was the one where he challenged himself to only 10 ingredients because a lot of his <laughs> recipes have like 45 ingredients. I know. Um, <laughs> but we've had a lot of folks come into the shop because of Otolenghi and some of those interesting spices that he calls for. I mean, cardamom, black limes, ras el hanout, rose harissa, things like that. We are happy to supply and and I love cooking Otolenghi. It's a really exciting combination of flavors and textures that he celebrates in his work. 
Well, you are the perfect person. (laughs) (laughs) I hope to meet him someday. Somebody has brought Curio Spices to him on our behalf because they had a connection, which is really exciting. So fascinating. So at this point, is your confidence in your ability to tell a great cinnamon from a good cinnamon or a great saffron from a eh, saffron? I don't want to lose the saffron thought because mm-hmm. I thought that saffron was super hard to get because you had to get it from Iran, that it was really Persia, Azerbaijan, places that are difficult for us to get to. And mm. you got it in Greece? Yes. that uh, Greece was my original saffron connection. And it's a little known production area, production region. It uh, is actually in the northern region of Greece, in Greek Macedonia. And I also think it's fascinating that there's this kind of name war between Greece and the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. But who can call it Macedonia? I, I had no idea until I learned about the history of saffron and that it was potentially first cultivated on the islands, like on Crete and Santorini, because there's frescoes dating back to 3500 BCE, depicting clear images of the saffron crocus and the women harvesting the saffron crocus. There's historical evidence that points to that region. Of course, it could have also been in Iran at that time, we don't know, but it's believed to have started in those islands and then traveled up through Turkey into Iran, but it does grow in Greece and they interestingly don't use it that much in the cuisine. It's mostly exported to other Hmm. countries. They have some, you know, value added products like Greek saffron teas and things like that. But compared to say the, the cuisine of Northern Italy that has risotto Milanese with saffron, there isn't any kind of signature Greek dish with saffron. So what makes saffron so hard to harvest? So it comes from a a small, delicate flower, an autumn-blooming crocus. So similar to the spring-blooming crocuses that we see around here in New England, those delicate purple flowers just after the snow melts that come up as the first sign of spring. It's a crazy process where the flowers have to be picked one by one by hand. There's no machine that can kind of roll over the field and cut the crocuses down. I've taken part in the harvest and... I tried all these different positions. I was like, maybe if I crawl around on my knees or maybe if I squat, like (laughs) I just was so unprepared for how physically taxing it was. Then the flowers have to be dried. Then the petals have to be separated from the actual stigma, which is the female part of the flower, which is saffron, and also separated from the stamen, the male part of the flower, which is not flavorful. And so it just takes months and it all has to be done by hand. So it's very laborious. It takes about 10,000 individual crocus flowers to make one pound of saffron. It's just wild. So it's very, very expensive, but it does have this unique flavor that can't be imitated with anything else. You know, it's just in its own realm of a flavor. It it has this honey-like sweetness, a little bit of bitterness. When I smell and taste saffron, it makes me feel like I'm in a meadow. It has this kind of grassy sweetness to it and it's very calming. So I've also read that it does have chemicals that calm you. <laughs> there's there's evidence and no surprise from a 
uh, University of Tehran in Iran that it's been used as an antidepressant. Some studies that have shown that it actually is uplifting. So what a plus. <laughs> and, and, and it has a very happy color. <laughs> it so. does. It is a supremely sunshiny color. The actual threads are red, but when you put them in water, they should, if they're real saffron, should turn the water a golden yellow color. The other thing about saffron is that you have to do that step in order to get the most out of it. You have to soak it in water or sort of steep it like, like a tea bag in water or alcohol or broth in order to get that flavor out. And that's one of the lessons we often, sort of a mini lesson we have in the shop when folks come in and they're like, I use saffron, but I couldn't taste it. You can't just kind of throw it in a dish like, like a grind of fresh pepper or cumin. So. We have to bloom it in some way. Yes. Um, Claire, this has just been great. I've learned so much. <laughs> great. I thank you. I, I'm going back to your store soon to get my uh, Autolenghi goodie bag. Good. <laughs> so Good to the, hear. So I will probably start with the one that only has 10 ingredients. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you one thing as a parting thought. I, When people buy spices... What's your advice on how to buy spices if they can't get to Curio? You mean out there in the world? Out there in the world. <laughs> out there in the world at the supermarket. At yes, let's, at let's say the supermarket. <laughs> I definitely encourage buying in small quantities. So not buying a huge bag of something because you don't necessarily know the quality of it before you get it home and better to get a small quantity. Visual cues, obviously, since you can't open up those jars and smell them in the grocery store. So making sure that the color is vibrant, especially for things like herbs, making sure that herbs are not a gray color, but a good vibrant green. And buy whole spices. I think that when you buy whole spices and bring them home and grind them yourself, you will get so much more flavor out of the spices and they will just have more life to them. If you're starting with ground spices, you're already starting with kind of depleted product because that spice has already lost a lot of volatile oil along the way. And unfortunately, most of the spices in the grocery store before you even get them home are three four years old. So you want to start with something that you can release the flavor on your own. So whole cumin seeds, whole allspice berries, whole peppercorns, things like that. God, you're great. A lot of fun. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Just good. Wonderful. Spices are a great cheat sheet because if you have a good spice mix and you can put it on a piece of chicken or a potato, it makes you look like you're a really good cook. <laughs> well, thank you, Louisa. Thank it was you. wonderful thank to you. talk to you. I really appreciate you reaching out. I'm honored to be on your show. If you want to try some of Claire's incredible spices, visit the store's website, curiospice.com. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. 
Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 